and welcome to the 49th Dairy Dialogue podcast. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and for some reason, completely unplanned, all of the guests on the show this week are from companies in the Netherlands. I was about to say the guests are from the Netherlands, but that wouldn't be quite true. It's the companies that are from the Netherlands. I was hoping I could connect the number 49 with the Netherlands or something, but I couldn't, or at least nothing insightful. FC Utrecht, the Dutch football club, is 49 years old, and last year there was an amazing news story about a 69-year-old Dutch man who lost a court case when he tried to change his age to 49. So that's all I've got. Anyway, it just so happened that all of the interviews are from the Netherlands, although they are all quite different and equally interesting. We spoke with Nick van Lannen, food process engineer at Top BV, about the company's new milk processing line, Guido de Aja and René Floris from Niso about the upcoming 11th Niso Dairy Conference, Nicolas Tuillon. Business Director, Dairy, at DSM Food Specialties, about Royal DSM's 150th anniversary celebrations. And to Annika van der Geen, the Global Marketing Director, B2B, at Friesland Campina Ingredients, about a new report to be released next week on food trends. Breaking with the Netherlands theme, we have our weekly update on the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone in Dublin. I could have asked him to give us the weekly report in Dutch, but that wouldn't be fair as I can't speak it either. Another busy week here at Dairy Reporter HQ. More rain, of course, and a busy news week to highlight for you so you can check out some of these articles on dairyreporter.com in case you missed them. In the U.S., the DFA opened applications for its 2020 accelerator. In New Zealand, Fonterra pushed back its reporting date. Dean Foods is planning for the future after looking into a number of different scenarios. SIL has hired a new CEO to implement its five-year plan. And Arla has introduced supercooling to transport fresh products worldwide. And a little hint, we have an interview with Arla on next week's show, although not about this. We also shared the news that in the UK, Arla Foods is changing its labelling wording to tackle food waste. And that's not what the interview's about either. You'll just have to wait. Valio Milk is going free-range in Finland. In South Africa, the hearings to determine if Milko can take over Clover continue. And our correspondent in Asia told us about how Myanmar is pushing for self-sufficiency in milk. Yesterday, we had a roundup of some of the things you can expect if you're headed to Pack Expo in Las Vegas, and there's a ton of stuff going on, and you can still register. Halo Top has been bought by Wells Enterprises, New Zealand's Sinlay's profits are up, and there are plenty of other news stories to choose from, and we've got a long show lined up, so I'll leave it there. And so, on to the first guest on the show this week. The ultimate in transparency when it comes to milk has to be bottles of milk that come from just one cow. And thanks to an innovation from Dutch company Top BV, which is based in Fageningen, that is now not only possible, it's happening. Farmers are now able to install a new processing line from Top BV that takes milk from one cow, processes it, and bottles it on the spot. It's already on the shelves of some of the biggest supermarkets in the Netherlands, and to tell us more about it is Nick Van Lannen, food process engineer at Top BV. So the company I work for is called Top BV, 
and we are a commercial service provider in the in the food industry. We work with food producers and also actually equipment manufacturers. The people that work for top were with 25. There's food technologists and also mechanical engineers. So we know about the food and the shelf life and the taste, and also about the stainless steel machine to actually make that food. So that's a quite a funny combination that we have going for us. So as I said, we work for food producers. Uh, we do consultancy projects with them, advise them on, uh, if they, for example, want to make a new product or a new processing line, uh, or if they uh, want to increase the shelf life of their product. Uh, the, the, that's examples of uh, projects we do with these clients. And then our second business model is that we actually also make our own equipment. So once in a while, we decide that, uh, that there is a, an opportunity in the market for, for a new type of equipment. And then we, uh, we make that ourselves. Um, we have um, smaller like line production equipment, so smaller machines that we just produce in series and sell. And then the technology that we were going to talk about today is a technology that we made custom made for our clients. What you've custom made for your client is that this uh, Elka milk? Uh -huh. <laughs> is that yeah, right? Elka milk. Yeah, it, it, it means something in Dutch like each milk. Okay. The translation. Um, and yeah, so uh, this is an example of a technology that we made custom made for our client. He, he came up with the ID actually, and uh, he contacted us and asked us if we, uh, if we would uh, accept the challenge to make this for him. And the, the technology is a technology uh, that you can use to process the milk from each cow individually. It's a technology that is placed behind milking robots, so automatic milking of the cows. And as soon as that is done, the milk is sent to a pasteurizer. Uh, it's pasteurized so to kill the, all the bacteria and make it a safe, uh, safe uh, to drink. Right after that, it is sent to a filling machine where it's filled in bottles. So we know which milk from which cow ends up in which bottles. And then after that bottle is actually, there's a label put on the bottle with the name of the cow. And also if it contains relatively a lot of lactose, fat and protein. So I guess you'd be able to customize the labels in that respect insofar as you could label them as higher protein or higher fat, or I suppose the season would also make a difference to the taste of the milk, would it not? Yeah, yeah. So the time of year is, uh, is a big factor. Uh, another big factor is the time it uh, has been since the cow uh, gave birth to a cow. That's also a big, uh, of big effect, of a big influence of the composition of the milk. And, uh, and also just the, the genome, so the genetics of the cow. Each cow makes a slightly different uh, uh, milk. So I suppose this would also enable producers of the milk to tell a story to the consumer with regards to the specific cow that the milk came from. Yeah, the name of the cow is on the, on the bottle and then... So our customer sells it now to the Albert Heijn, uh, which is the biggest retailer in the Netherlands. People can buy it there. And if they, if they bought it, they can uh, look on the website of our customer, the dairy farmer, and fill in the name. And then they can see a picture of the cow and stuff like that. And what, and what kind of capacity would these machines have? 
this specific one was made to work with two milking robots. And uh, a, a milking robot typically services 50 cows. So our equipment uh, works well with 100 cows, approximately. Uh, there's a range, so you can, you can have a bit more or less. And it's um, so the, yeah. The the thing that the funny thing about these milking robots is that the cows can come and, and get milk whenever they want. Typically, that's three times a day, and uh, yeah, so 24/7. Our pasteurizer and filler will have a, a quite small capacity because um, the the 100 cows they are milked throughout the whole day. Um, but so yeah, I can give you the specifics. Uh, the pasteurizer is about 150 liters per hour. And you mentioned it's the first one. I assume you're planning on expanding this to other facilities. Uh huh. Yeah. So this is the first one. Uh, this this uh, particular dairy farmer is our launching customer. But we are uh, definitely looking to sell uh, to sell this equipment to more dairy farmers. We have quite a lot of interest from dairy farmers uh, that, that would like to uh, also implement a technology like this. For them, it's very interesting because um, it gives them a, basically an alternative for an alternative business model to sell their milk. Because almost basically all uh, dairy farmers right now sell it to big corporations. Uh, and, and milk really is a commodity nowadays. And um, this technology gives dairy farmers the, the opportunity to add more value to their products, the milk, at their own company, and, and then sell these uh, these bottles with milk for a way higher price per liter than uh, the price they would get if they just sell it to a normal corporation. So yeah, it, it, for them it's a, an alternative and a way to add more value and, and thus uh, earn more money from their milk. And does it and as you said, it's something that allows them to add value to their milk. Is it something that's easy to install for them? Yeah. So, of course, it, it, it requires some engineering. Um, and this is something that we will always support with. Each each situation in the farm is, is different. For example, the, the space allocation that we have and the utilities that are present. Uh, so there's always a little bit custom custom-made engineering. But really, further than that, most of the equipment is just plug and play for the farmer. And um, there's one operator needed for, for the whole installation, for the whole. It's really a, a small processing line, a small little factory. And uh, yeah, you need one operator. And the operator, he, he looks at if, if, if the equipment is running well and also uh, fills the, the filler with, uh, make sure that there's enough bottles and caps and uh, also, uh, like when 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 the bottles are filled, you put it in boxes and, th and things like that. But all those all those things that have to be done can be done by one by one person. And it takes care of the labeling as well. Yes, it does. Yeah, so that's automatic. Right. So and you can help mm -hmm. with you can help with that whole process right through to the design of the labels as well. Yes. Yeah. So we're not a marketing firm. So what we can tell you is the, the legal requirements that are needed uh, to be to be uh, well put on the label, basically. Uh, but we will not do like design the label for you. But we work together with some uh, some firms, smaller firms, that that can help with that too. It seems like a great opportunity not only for them to 
gain value for their milk, but also to be able to tell stories about that milk. What we noticed is really farmers are entrepreneurs. And um, nowadays in their current system, they've, they've become a commodity provider, but a lot of them are looking for ways to innovate and to be entrepreneurial. And this is a, a, yeah, one option for them. Right. And as you said, it's it's kind of a one size fits all, but it also you can, if a farmer had specific requirements, you can adapt what you have to yeah, each individual. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, this is something that you will be selling outside of the Netherlands as well? Yeah, uh, we are definitely planning on that. Um, of course, well, we just finished our first client, which is in the Netherlands, was close to us, it's easy. But we are definitely looking to roll this out, uh, definitely throughout Europe. And, uh, well, we'll see how far we'll get. But definitely uh, we have plans to also install these installations outside of the Netherlands. So the reason why we really started working on this technology and became very enthusiastic is because yeah, there's there's some obvious trends where this really fits in well, and that's the like the traceability and the, the transparency, and but also um, it's, very, it's quite unprocessed. So the milk after milking is is pasteurized and filled. So for example, we don't have any homogenization steps or standardization. Those are all basically processes that are done in the big dairy factories which we uh, consciously decided not to do because we wanted to give it more of an authentic image and taste well, it's very quick as well it's just not having to go into a tanker and then go 200 kilometers and then no. and it's it's very very quick and yeah. very very fresh yeah, 10 minutes and it's in the bottle Next, we head a little bit northwest in the Netherlands to Amersfoort to hear about a new report out next week from Friesland Campina Ingredients on the latest trends in the world of food and beverages. The report has three trends, each with three micro-trends, but instead of me just listing them off, which wouldn't be very interesting, we spoke with the expert, Annika van der Heijn, the Global Marketing Director B2B at Friesland Campina Ingredients. Yeah, well, at, at Friesland Campina Ingredients, Food and Beverages, we believe that um, moments of feeling good matter for everyone, like drinking a nice milk tea in China or a strong coffee in Vietnam or enjoying a good pastry in Turkey. It's this, you know, daily moments of indulgence that are important. And we enrich those moments by touching the consumer's senses or, like, by our value-adding ingredients, we contribute to the food and the drink experience of the consumer delivering that moment of feeling good. To be a truly global leader in this uh, and a front runner in our markets, we continue to invest to understand that, so to understand what that moment of feeling good or that moment of daily luxury looks like for a consumer. And, and therefore, we continue to invest in market data and marketing consumer research. And we've now bundled these insights into a global trend report, which we then also have enriched with the insights from our um, on online listening program. With this trend report, we aim to inspire our customers first and the insights then show the emerging needs among consumers, which enables our customers to anticipate what's to come. And um, in this way, we can, together with our customers, bring the relevant innovation to the consumer and hence create more of those moments of feeling good. You mentioned the, the research. Is that done internally or do you also work with other companies on research? Well, it's actually a, a large variety of research. So it's the market data, the research studies that we do with other parties, 
uh, it's also our experts' view, and then it's eventually enriched with our online uh, listening program, consumer insights from, from that program. We observed a lot of local trends, and with those, we bundled to three overarching trends with, with all these uh, data and insights. There must be regional differences that you have to take into account. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it, it, is, it is actually this bundling of all local trends. So the, the three overarching trends that we mentioned in the report, these are global, uh, but they all have micro trends and local manifestations. And how important is it for Friesland campaign ingredients to be able to stay ahead of these trends? Yeah, the, well, the trend report that, that we made regards to the Friesland campaign ingredients food and beverage segment, and, and for us it's very important. As this food and beverage market is very fast-paced, like, well, what you also see around you, like the different coffees you see come and go in coffee bars every season, our customers also need to make sure that they're in the market with the right concepts at the right time over and over again. So for us to be the right partner for our customers, we actually need to be ready by the time a relevant trend manifests itself. They'll be ready with the relevant knowledge and the concepts and applications. So the, the trends and the report as well is, is very important for us to be constantly prepared for the future. And you, you have facilities in some different countries as well. How important is it to actually be located in some of these places? Yeah, that really helps tremendously. By, by having these facilities and, and the people on the ground in different countries, we are both close to the market as well as close to our customers. And having this global footprint also helps to accelerate on geographical overarching trends, like, for instance, globalization. Our consumers want to get the best from all different kinds of cultures. Also in trends and applications of travel, like for instance a cheese tea that we now see traveling from Asia to Europe. One of the biggest trends lately seems to be the plant-based, and I don't know if it's necessarily a trend, it might even be bigger than that, but how are you able to capitalize on that? Because I know Friesland Campina, obviously a dairy company, so are you able to do anything with that trend? Yes. Yeah, what we, indeed, in the food and beverages, uh, we see that many consumers adopt this consumption pattern that's more and more varied and diverse. But for instance, when eating out of home, we see consumers even avoid outlets or restaurants that do not offer a wide variety in their menus. And therefore, we also think and believe that offering varied choices, which is including plant-based and free-from products, will further gain importance. As food and beverages, we come from the belief that this moment of feeling good matter for everyone, and that's why we as food and beverages have been for years offering a total solution, which of course includes dairy, uh, which that is the most important proposition for Fries and Campina, but also other choices uh, of consumption. Could you maybe go through some of those trends and micro trends that are in the report? Well, the first one uh, of the three overarching trends is experiences engaging all senses. Here we see that consumers want a multi-sensory experience that engages all the senses. So we see new flavors quickly traveling beyond borders and across the globe. And we also see food concepts and products that are transcending categories. So it results in a kind of fusion experience, like the desserts becoming drinks and snacks becoming meals. Food and drinks more than ever must have the potential to positively surprise by touching all those senses. And we have examples in there uh, from a cotton candy tea or a, a red velvet cappuccino or, for instance, a black forest uh, cherry trifle. So the second uh, overarching trend that we see is conscious indulgence. Next to being a primary need, eating and drinking is 
a way of supporting and expressing our lifestyle, which more and more becomes a conscious expression of our beliefs and opinions and interests, and even of our mental, emotional, and, and economical state. So, and all of this without wanting to sacrifice in good taste. So therefore, understandable communication or labeling on nutrition remains key, but it should also address health and ethical sustainability, food safety and quality demands, which means that for manufacturers, uh, the role of storytelling uh, is becoming a key aspect in the food and drinks that are being offered. And some examples of concepts that we have in there are, for instance, a, a brown rice drink or a, a mango frappe. And what's the third trend? It's personalize it yourself conveniently. Consumers worldwide are looking for products that then be adapted to their personal ideas, their taste preferences and nutritional needs. And by adding that personal touch, and we see it preferably while spending more real moments with loved ones, consumers feel that their creation is um, unique and created in the moment. And with this, you can think of a two-step rose latte or a do-it-yourself donut. It's funny you see some of these micro trends, and one of them is the um, the shareworthy experiences. And you think, well, who does that? And then you find yourself doing exactly the same thing. Yes, absolutely. This is a really nice one that we the shareworthy experience, uh, where the, often the camera is first. And now, in a zigzag kind of way, we're headed back southeast again, just a little way, about half an hour on the train, to Ada, home of Nizo. The 11th Niso Dairy Conference takes place next month, and we spoke with Guido Diaja and René Floris from Niso about the conference. And I first asked René if he could give us a bit of history about the event. Here's the situation. Uh, Elsevier has currently a um, scientific journal called the International Dairy Journal, and before that used to be the Dutch Journal of milk research but it was a purely dutch journal and, and that was uh, that, that was highly cited and, and that was actually the one of the standards in dairy research so at some point that journal was transferred to elsevier so uh, that's more than 22 years ago and then it was decided to set up a conference so this is how the niso dairy conference started basically by that cooperation which is still the case we closely cooperate with elsevier on, on this one but already for 22 years. Now, why every two years? That has everything to do with the fact that uh, organization-wise, you, of course, need your resources. That's that's one. But also to be very relevant and and new, to be as new as you can be. We feel that uh, every two years is a frequency that, that fits. So every two years, I think you can come up with a conference where really new stuff that has been developed in those two years are visible, the research groups have advanced and came up with something new. And, and how has it changed over the years? It must have must have developed. Has it grown? Yeah, it has grown a little bit. I think uh, we're, we're now 200 and before I think we were at 100. So it's not a huge conference in terms of numbers uh, in that respect, but it has always been international. Uh, I've been in this organization for very many years and I, I can safely say that uh, each and every uh, edition covered more than 20, sometimes 30 countries, but all continents. And so people from uh, Australia and New Zealand also fly in to, to, to give a little bit about the background. So it's truly international. It, I, I think it's fair to say that this is the only one in the dairy field that stands out like this. So all in all, it doubled uh, almost in size. It has over 
20 nationalities. And the mix is also quite interesting. It's 30% uh, industry and 70% academics, which makes it a very nice, uh, interesting uh, mix both ways. How long does the conference last? It starts on October the 8th? It's two full days of conference, and the third day uh, always involves a site visit at NISO, so people can see NISO, but also see, see content and have content discussions here. And it's good to have a mix of academia and industry in the same room, I guess. Yes, and, and I think the essence here is that the industry is looking for the newest developments from academia, but academia, and that's, I think, what, what a lot of the dairy research is, is about, is looking for, let's say, those areas to develop which in the end are of relevance. And there is really an, an applied world. So the academic people really need to also know what the industry is, is, is moving uh, towards. Yes, it's obviously a very circular discussion. Yeah. I think for the dairy, maybe there are other, other industries as well, but, but, but for dairy research, this is, this is crucial. And, and I think that's, that's why these worlds uh, are meeting. And we, yeah, we have no hard time of getting industry here nor getting academia here. And, you know, in some conferences, if there are too much industry, academia is not really interested because it's not deep enough, which is not the case in our conference because it's about uh, science and, and, and the details, but also industry is there. And I think that's also fair to say industry is also willing to also show what they are doing. I mean, if they don't do that, then people might look at the industry as being vague or as being not transparent. So I think there's also a need for the industry to be uh, open. Do you get presentations by any of the industry or is it mainly yeah. the scientific? Yeah, yeah. so we have uh, five keynote lectures and so one of the keynotes is from industry. And what are the highlights yeah. this year of the presentations? The keynotes, they cover the biochemistry, uh, health and processing. Attached to this uh, conference is, of course, a poster session. So a lot of the researchers can uh, can show their, their newest developments in that session. There's about 80, even more posters, which I think is really showing that it's, it's scientifically uh, relevant. Of course, the focus theme is protein. That's really a theme that echoes in the in the food industry as such. Dairy protein, I think, really stands out in terms of quality, but they always have to show all the benefits of that because I think if you look at other protein sources, plant proteins, or so they're up and coming. So I think the dairy industry really needs to, to keep showing how, how good the science behind the proteins are, what they can do, how beneficial they are if you turn, look to the industry, and of course for academia to, to show how well they know the proteins. So that's, I think, uh, a big highlight and, and I think a super trend in the, uh, in the industry. Yeah, furthermore, it's an excellent network opportunity. We have a, a dinner at, after, at the first evening and a needle organized barbecue uh, on the premises on the second. And uh, there you see uh, industry and academia, academia mixing. Uh, this is totally interesting and that, I think that's also really valuable for them. Yeah, I think that's really fair to say that in how we set up the conference and what we do on-site and what we try to, um, let's say, to initiate is networking opportunities. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, it's good for research and industry to be together. And in, in, in a conference like yeah. this, it's often very difficult for industry because the science is sometimes too complicated, so they shy away from it. Yeah. So it's good that it's yeah. at a level that everybody can get something out of it. 
Exactly. So the academia uh, has to learn how to talk the language which is uh, understandable or, or which the industry can follow and vice versa. But also the uh, level of the industry people are uh, very high level and so they're not the everyday researcher. There's really high level people who are into, into the details. And in terms of the speakers that you have, that's also global. Yeah, and we always try to do that, and that has everything to do with the fact that it is international, but also that we know that the groups, or, or let's say the people who are working on the science edge, they are in uh, Australia, New Zealand, they are in Europe, and they are in the US, so we carefully look at that. And of course, we try to balance that also to see, uh, sometimes a trend in Europe, um, research-wise, has not been picked up in the US, and vice versa, and that makes it really interesting. Is it something yeah. that people can still register for, or is it already full? No, people can still register. So, so some of the networking op opportunities, they, they like uh, the conference dinner, because there's so many people at some point, they they tend to be uh, rather full. <laughs> uh, so at some point, we have to say, no, we're not there yet. And also the conference, uh, we yeah. are almost on the, on the record, uh, a number of, yeah. of attendees. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. If, if another 50 will be coming, it's, uh, right. it's a large, large location, so we, we could accommodate probably, but uh, that will be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For everybody, it's, it's, uh, it's open. And what kind of facility is it held in? Yeah, yeah, it's also a nice story. It's actually held in the facility where the Dutch Olympic uh, teams reside. It's called Papendal. Uh, so it's, uh, it's actually a facility that's geared towards top sport people. We have been looking at it for many uh, years. Eh? So should we go to Amsterdam? Should we go to Rotterdam? Very good reason to do so. But uh, in the end, also uh, Elsevier acknowledged that this was uh, the site to do it because it's well known. People know it. it, it it's close by. Eh? It's, it's only the Netherlands and it's, it's maybe 10 minutes from, uh, from Utrecht. Um, but, that's, but that's okay. So, so it's on the premises of, uh, of a very large sports facility. They, they don't make you run 1500 meters before every presentation or anything like that. No, 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 no. And actually, but that's that, that's sometimes very difficult to organize. But, but we once had a tour through these facilities to also show the high research because they do a lot of research there. Yeah, you can imagine that uh, that, that tour was fully booked in a, in a second. Also on food, by the way, yeah? and dairy yeah. food, and drinks, and all those yeah. kind of things, power drinks, and one of the spearheads of the Netherlands, at least for the athletes, is uh, uh, food and, uh, uh, let's say, top sport. They should go hand in hand. So there are huge programs on that. About an hour west of Eda is the popular city of Delft, famous not only for its pottery, but also for microbiology. It's the home of Royal DSM, which has connections to that microbiology history, and this year it's celebrating its 150th anniversary, which includes a free-to-the-public display in Delft that is running from September to December. To tell us more about the history of DSM, its products and the celebrations is Nicolas Touillon, Business Director Dairy at DSM Food Specialties. The company was started as the, uh, it was called the, the, by then the Dutch Yeast and, and Spirit Factory. And it was founded by uh, an entrepreneur called uh, Jacques van Marken in uh, 1869. And the purpose uh, was, uh, of course, for the entrepreneur to produce uh, high quality uh, yeast for the for the bakery, uh, bakeries at the time. And back, back then, at that time, companies 
already had a, a massive societal goal. The, the idea was also to create jobs and provide a better, better livings for the, for the community around Delft and the, the employees and their, and their families. In the 40s, uh, they started making penicillin secretly, and it was uh, given to the resistance and later to the Allies. Uh, it's interesting. In the 50s and 60s, uh, Delft uh, was a location where uh, they actually uh, developed and pioneered uh, a preservative called uh, natamycin. Natamycin is used absolutely widely around the world today for the cheese and dairy industries. Uh, and it has become really uh, very popular these days because the, the consumers are really looking for safe preservative solutions. And natamycin is a very, very safe uh, preservative solution. And it can be extended to absolutely any type of, uh, of preservation. It has an antimicrobial activity. So it could, for example, be used for uh, crop protection and, and, and many more uh, uh, applications. So it's very interesting. In the 60s, they started uh, producing lactase in Delft. So you see, like every, every, almost every, every 10 years, every day, day, there was some, some, some significant innovation. And that really illustrates uh, this uh, very innovative uh, spirit of, of the SM and in particular of the, the team in Delft through, 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 through the, I would say, the decades, uh, almost centuries. Uh, so in the in the 60s, it started to to, to lactase, and now we are the we are the world leader, uh, for example, uh, in producing lactase. Um, 90s, uh, and ever since, they have been building uh, capability in cultures, dairy cultures. Again, it's a, it's a very very uh, open-minded and um, diverse and creative uh, environment. So in 2017. Uh, we opened uh, a brand, a completely new uh, state-of-the-art innovation center lab uh, called the Rosalind Franklin uh, Biotech Lab, or we call it Lab6. It's actually fantastic technology in there. We, we, we really enjoy uh, showing it to, to, to visitors, whether they are customers or other type of stakeholders. It seems like it's very diverse in terms of the things that you're able to do, which always means that it's a more interesting place when you're not just doing the same thing all the time. Yes, absolutely. Where are the products sold around the world? Is uh, pretty much everywhere? Today, absolutely global. I wonder if you could give me some of the latest innovations that are coming out of the company. I know the, the Maxil Act has a certain the, a connection to the dairy industry. Yeah, I mean, uh, Maxilact, it's, it's, uh, it's a brand name for, for, for lactase. Uh, recently, we launched the fast, fastest lactase uh, on the market, uh, simply the purest and the fastest. Innovation on, on, the, on the culture side, on, on, I would say on a daily basis, on a daily basis, sorry, because by, by nature of this business, this is, some, this is a business which, which, which requires improvement and continuous, uh, continuous improvement. The purpose of, the, of DSM is to create brighter lives uh, for all. And uh, one of the, the, the ways to achieve that is to enable better food for everyone. So uh, better food uh, doesn't necessarily, well, testing better, obviously, but also more nutritious. So there's a lot of work done today on uh, enzymatic solutions, on uh, solutions based on existing probiotics, new probiotic strains, etc., cetera, uh, to create more uh, more nutritious products, for example. But you also have uh, about 2 billion people in the world which are suffering from another form of malnutrition, which is a too high uh, calorie intake, and over, uh, uh, which are overfed. 
for that, uh, for example, now we work on a lot of uh, sugar reduction, uh, you know, innovative solutions, uh, and that is quite interesting in the dairy uh, industry. Uh, you can do that in through through many ways. You can again use the lactase and uh, and uh, remove the sugar from the from the milk, but you can also then you you need to you need to to keep the sweetness in the taste. So Delft was uh, recently uh, the place where most of the R and D work was done behind a, a, a joint venture that uh, DSM has built with Cargill, and we are producing uh, by fermentation uh, a stevia uh, sweetener. The brand name is Eversweet. I, I imagine as well, you mentioned some of the things like malnutrition and obesity. I would imagine that food is really food and nutrition is really at the forefront of many political agendas, and it's very important right now. It must be a very exciting time to be involved in that. Yes, I mean, really, uh, and, I, and again, I go back to the to the the proposal of of DSM. We say purpose-led and performance-driven science-based company. So, the purpose uh, and the sustainability uh, at DSM are, are well. It's built on different uh, different pillars. One, uh, if you look at it externally, uh, one of the key uh, the key uh, pillars on which this is all built is uh, our commitment to to support the. Um, Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, uh, the SDGs. So th this is really uh, this is very interesting because we we help our customers creating foods uh, which taste good, so the consumers want to buy, foods which are following the trends uh, the consumer are asking for, but also foods uh, which are, we know are going to provide uh, the right the right nutrition. So it's 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 very interesting because you 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 really feel the purpose. But through food, you have all other means to deliver uh, on sustainability. Because I mean, sustainability, okay, for us, nutrition is one one axis. Uh, other axis would be uh, impact on climate change. So there, I go back to the stevia example, where uh, we say, okay, instead of growing plants and using ground uh, agriculture on ground for that, we can do things much more efficiently by fermentation. And then you can look at the third uh, axis for uh, sustainability, which is more towards circular economy, uh, recycling, etc., and avoiding uh, food waste. And uh, in this respect, uh, we can work with we work with our customers, with all the leading food producers, to have all sorts of ideas. But key ideas, uh, and now I'm talking I'm talking specifically about my, the business I'm responsible for, which is the dairy business, um, increasing shelf life. Um, you know, improving the the, the biopreservation uh, solutions, so 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 the, the the food producers can ex can extend the shelf life of their products or, and 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 help uh, the, the the modern retail to to uh, all the distribution channels uh, in their in their own goals to reduce again food waste, uh, throwing away uh, I mean huge amounts I mean uh, it's, it's it's a global concern huge amount of of foods which are just a little bit too old. But would be perfectly uh, healthy to to be consumed. So, yep, that's, that's that's actually quite interesting. Obviously, the 150 years is quite the milestone. How is that anniversary being celebrated with, through DSM? It's a big thing because the DSM today has a, again a leading a leading position in biotech globally. A big part of it started in Delft. Um, so that there is uh, well, there are all sorts of celebration, of, obviously, um, but the, the most uh, the, the, the most I would say the impactful one or visual one, uh, there is an exhibition organized in Delft. So it's uh, there is we use for that purpose uh, one of the original buildings. Uh, it's a beautiful building. Um, 
and there is an um, exhibition called a small life uh, big impact which obviously uh, the small uh, the microbes uh, are small but they have a massive impact on the, on the human life uh, and now we're trying to basically explain uh, and show through uh, a bit of the the, the, bio, the biotechnology and what, what what microbes are and what they do and also uh, how how did uh, through uh, 150 years uh, of development uh, uh, DSM and, and the company that was again initially founded in Delft this um, uh, Dutch Eastern factory uh, and, and, and and spirits factory I think in Dutch it's Nederlandsch Gist and Spiritus Fabrik how this uh, this company uh, through 150 years has shaped uh, the world of biotechnology so it's uh, it's, it's it's a nice exhibition for for a few obviously we're happy to bring our customers and stakeholders but it's open to the general public and i think the the, the community at large and the city of delft uh, are very proud of that and it's always good to be visible within the community uh, and we try to i mean the the, the site in delft uh, is really trying to 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 be as open uh, as possible to the world the idea i mean we're building a campus uh, so it's not just dsm uh, researchers i mean we've got uh, roughly 400 of world-class scientists and technicians there which are working for dsm but we're opening the site to external partners. Uh, we've already a couple of joint ventures uh, which are active on the site. But we invited, we are inviting startups uh, and small companies who want to be present there and work together with us. And I mean, typically, you know, bringing sort of win-win partnership. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTLFC Stone. Overall, it was a quiet week for dairy here in Europe, price-wise anyway, um, although there was a lot of trading uh, done in futures. Prices did have a firmer tone to them. Uh, butter seems to have taken some of the momentum that was in the cream market, which uh, was stronger again this week, uh, breaking through that €5,000 uh, a tonne barrier level. This is over €1,000 a tonne higher probably in the last three to four weeks. Quarter four butter ahead of Christmas was up about 30 to 40 euros on the week, hovering around the 37.75 level. Quarter one and quarter two remained constant at the 37.60 and 38.40 level, respectively. Uh, skim milk powder was the relatively strongest performer, where quarter one 2020 was up about 35 euros a ton to 22.60, and quarter four uh, 2019 up slightly by 10 euros to the 22.20 level. Uh, further out the curve in quarter two, 2020 remained flat at around the 22.80 level. Uh, physical also seemed to be a bit up uh, on skimmel powder. Not a lot of quality product below the, below the 2000 level. Whey has been relatively constant around at 6.70 level for quarter four. Thank you, Liam. Talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it. We made it through the Friday the 13th show. Well, almost. I plan on heading to the Netherlands next year to do a lot of stories in a week. So this really is the Netherlands podcast part one. Hopefully next year there will be parts two and three. Next week, we'll be talking to, among others, Arla Foods. Of course, if you're listening to this and have something you think would make for a good feature, we're always glad to hear from you. You can just contact us through the homepage, dairyreporter.com. And so, until next time, have a great week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>